So this week was like super dumb, but super fun. I liked both of these episodes, but they were stupid episodes. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I think Waking Moments was was dumber than Message in a Bottle, although Message in a Bottle is dumb, I think, primarily for reasons that – for reasons of casting. Yeah, but, you know, which we'll get to. Although, I don't know, to a degree, having Andy Dick and it kind of ran with having Andy Dick and it was actually a good Andy Dick performance, which is damning with faint praise, but uh, – <laughs> They, you know, Waking Moments is supposed to, I think, be a more serious episode, uh, and this, this is the infamous Naked Tuvok episode that you have sent me many screenshots of, so. Correct. I was happy to finally see this. And did it live up to your expectations? You know, I was, I was expecting both more and less than this, so it, it exactly met my expectations. I mean, you have to understand that this was, you know, network television at eight o'clock, yeah. I believe, on, you know, in 1997. So there was really never much of a chance of a butt shot. But we live in hope. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. I think Waking Moments is dumb, but it's enjoyable. And yeah, it's one I of mean, those episodes that, like, I don't, I don't quite get. I think part of my issue with it is that Star Trek Voyager seems to be handling... Uh, this sort of like setup for these episodes in a very different way where there was at least, I think, some attempt at believability of the science in, say, TNG and DS9 hardly ever did this type of episode. I mean, every now and again, but DS9 was, was a very different show, as as you know, and if you haven't listened to our DS9 episodes, they're all there. So go listen to them. But, you know, for for example, like, I just, I fundamentally don't understand how this alien species would have evolved. I don't understand how they all don't die. Like, there, there, there are a lot of questions about this alien species that this episode raises in my mind, and it's not interested in answering any of them, which is fine. And at the but, very, I mean, the big question it doesn't answer to me is why the hell are they even doing this? Like, if the, why did the alien species even begin to provoke the, the, the Voyager? Yeah, there's there's no explanation for that. I mean, they could have just not done it and yeah. Voyager wouldn't have fucked with them. So I'm not really sure why they did. That's that's a really good question. And I, you know, this isn't a case like in last week in uh, the Da Vinci episode where, okay, they're provoking Voyager because they want to steal their tech to sell it. Like, that's a fine motivation. I get that motivation. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's not like they seem to care about any of them. They're not trying to take Voyager's life force. They're not stealing their dream juju or anything like that. Right, exactly. I mean, I, I don't want to go down a road of fixing an episode, but I think, you know, part of it for me is that obviously the episode wanted to start off with with the dreams, right? They, mm-hmm. they wanted to start off with this really sort of surreal atmosphere to the episode to, you know, p- put it in a place and time and a context and just make it have an interesting opening, which I get. But yeah, you're right. Like, I feel like it should have had a scene where they came across the planet and it had, you know... Uh, uh, hypertronium dilithium or something and they were like great we can power our replicators for months with this and we'll go down there and get it yeah. and then the aliens started fucking with them yeah yeah like if they just let them go through their space if they didn't appear in their dreams they wouldn't have even and again maybe this is one of those where it was vaguely explained in the episode and i just missed it but that's a failing of the episode i would say rather than a failing of my attention span I, I would I would agree. I mean, I, I don't think that I don't think it was explained. And, you know, it seemed to be going down this road of just having the aliens just hate 
species yeah. that are awake. I, I don't, you know, which is a, a weird thing. And but again, I, I like, if if you know, sure they can hate, you know, and they 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 give some lip service to, well, your waking people destroyed us sleeping people. But again, the waking people didn't even know they existed. Right. Though, yeah. I mean, like whether or not other alien species have fucked with these sleeping aliens is is something that doesn't really have anything to do with Voyager. And Voyager was just merrily flying away and, and not really paying any attention to them. And of course, once they started to fuck with Voyager, that's when Chakotay went off into his dream adventures. And I mean, I like the episode. I think that it's it's really striking and there are yeah. a lot of good scenes in it. And it's quite a good Chakotay episode, even, I would say. But like the, the the justification for it is is a little flimsy to me, and I, I think that the you know the alien the the main alien the guy who plays the main alien does a good job of playing this this you know kind of off center person who is is quite frankly uh, very creepy, and you know I think that the episode is going for a particular tone that it doesn't quite get. I don't think that the dreams are ever really that scary. They're they're more kind of like what people think dreams are like than actual dreams. I mean, I don't yeah. like dream imagery in general in film and television. I, I find it tedious, and there's I, only a couple of things I can think of that that did it well. Uh, for, you know, uh, I really like the dream sequences in DS Nine in general, but episodes like this are hurt by the fact that I've seen most of David Lynch's movies. You know, he does this kind of thing and much better. And so, you know, this sounds like a very, you know, it's a slightly unfair comparison in a lot of ways. Again, this was a broadcast TV show versus, you know, an auteur filmmaker. But at the same time, again, I've seen this done better. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know that that's a, I mean, I I actually think that that's even a criticism of of Voyager because Twin Peaks was a network television show. That's true. That's true. And, you know, of course, Twin Peaks failed miserably in its second season because David Lynch got bored. But... Uh, that was able to to pull off some very very striking imagery. I think the X Files, um, mm. you know, for example, an episode like One Breath with with uh, you know Scully's comatose dreaming or whatever was going on in that episode uh, was quite striking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's at once uh, because partially this episode is trying to fake us out and make us think that parts of the dream sequence are not a dream sequence, right? Like we the. There are several times in which we, you know, Chakotay believes he's out of it and he's in the waking world, but he's really still asleep. And that, you know, so in some way you don't want to have that much in the way of visual indicators or anything like that, a different filming style or anything to kind of give away the twist. And again, in terms of an effective plot twist, I like that, you know, you are guessing what's real, what's not. Uh, But at the same time, the entire episode does just look like Voyager. It does, yeah. And I, I mean, I, obviously, as you said, that's for a very particular reason. But I mean, the other the other problem I always have with this sort of we don't know if this is a dream or not is, and and I just will get you know a little like mm. in the real world personal because when I'm dreaming, I'm not aware I'm dreaming, but I also don't know that I would ever mistake it for the real world. If you know what I mean, I there there like dreams are not the real world and I don't experience them in the same way that I experience the real world. And so I don't know that I would ever think they were the real world. I don't know. I mean, I have had dreams where I have accept, I have a lot of dreams where I accept the reality of the dream. Something bad happens in the dream. I am treating it with the seriousness of that. And then I do have plenty of, you know, more lucid dreams where I am 
aware that I am dreaming where I'm saying, okay, well, this is, you know, as, as, uh, I think it's Paris who says, you know, he realizes that he's dreaming and he could just do whatever and he's floating and having fun with it. You know, I have had those too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's right. But what I mean by that is like on a fundamental level, the experience of a dream for me seems a lot flatter than the real world. I'm not experiencing things with my eyes, my ears, my nose. And so it doesn't it doesn't appear to be real to me in the same way that the actual real world does. And I don't think there's ever a way that I would think it was real i mean you know i i have had one lucid dream actually recently which is kind of weird uh you know actually i think the night before i watched this episode or the or a couple of nights before i watched this episode i had a dream where i was in a house and i was hungry and i went into the fridge and i started rooting around for food and then for whatever reason i was like oh i'm hungry i should wake up and i woke up <laughs> yeah but that doesn't happen to me very often yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and part of that is I think your experience of dreaming, everybody's experience of dreaming is very different. And I mean, lucid dreaming is something people train themselves to do, right? Like sure. that, that is, uh, you know, a degree of control of your dreams can be achieved through meditation style exercises and things like that and keeping a dream journal. And if you, you know, it's in a way dreaming well is a skill you develop. That That said – while Chakotay, especially because of his experiences with the, uh, you know, peyote machine, is capable of doing these. And, you know, again, people just spontaneously can have lucid dreams from time to time. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going No, no, I think that's right because, I, I mean, that kind of feeds into to what Chakotay is doing in this episode and kind of the yeah. – I guess the reality of the situation, to, which is kind of a strange term to use for this episode. But, but I think it's appropriate because – you know, it starts out with everybody having their their individualized dreams slash nightmares. And I mean, I also have questions about why a Vulcan would dream about being naked, because that seems like a very sort of human thing. But whatever. I mean, I think Vulcans would probably dream about other things. But hey, OK. Um, and then it morphs into a collective unconsciousness, as Seven of Nine says. And I'm not sure what the I don't, I'm not sure how to track that. I, I don't know how that I happens. Mean, like I well, I think the collective unconsciousness thing is less what's actually happened and more Seven of Nines kind of attempt at this moment because we because it is controlled by these psychic sleep aliens, right? So I, I guess if there is a group dream happening, it's because they're creating this dream world. Um, you know, it, it, the the general sense of a collective unconsciousness in the Jungian sense is something that occurs naturally. This is something that's occurring unnaturally in a way. Uh, well, it's unnatural. It's unnatural for the Voyager crew, but it doesn't seem to be unnatural for the aliens. Yeah, and you know, they they do half-ass it by. Oh, how could such a being evolve? And you know, the, the, because the episode has no answers, the show gives us no answers. Yeah, in a, in a weird way, it reminds me. I forget the name of the episode. I think oh, wasn't it called Innocence, where uh, Tuvok mm. crash lands on that moon with the children, and yeah. it turns out that this species actually ages backwards, and the children are old people. And you're kind of like, okay, that's a that's an interesting concept. But once you start examining it logically for more than like one second, <laughs> uh, it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. So I think that maybe this is. Yeah, it was the kind of thing that worked on Mork and Mindy because that was a comedy and we had, you know, Jonathan Winters acting like a little kid and it was funny. But when you're trying to make it a serious television show and, you know, ask us to take the concept seriously, it's a little wacky. 
But yeah, it's certainly, but I, I think it, I mean, there's no real point to this episode other than mm. to have them have wacky adventures in Dreamland, though. Yeah, and to a degree, as far as wacky adventures in Dreamland go, it was a fine episode. Like I said, it was, this is not, this was not a bad episode. I just couldn't take it too seriously. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily a problem for a mid-season four episode, if you know what I mean. I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a problem at all. I, I enjoyed watching this episode and I was entertained by it and there were also a couple of moments that I really liked. So, you know, on the whole I think it worked very well. And there there's one thing about Voyager that that um and especially I think this episode is a good example of it, which is that um the show usually is is entertaining, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't find this show boring most of the time. Yeah. And yeah, this is an episode that, you know, and TNG had these episodes as well. But in TNG, I feel like these episodes were a little bit more painful usually. So there, there's a there's a level of competence, like a baseline level of competence and skill with these kind of episodes with the Voyager that that perhaps weren't always there in TNG, which is a, a weird thing to say, but well, but I think it's true. No, I mean, and we, we one of the things we came off very strongly feeling about TNG is that TNG is horrible at comedy, and DS Nine and Voyager are better at it. They don't have many laugh out loud episodes. Again, um, message in a bottle was, you know, one of the funnier episodes in a while. And again, we'll talk about that, but, uh, for the most part, like they are able to do a wackier tone more sparingly. And, uh, the fact that this episode goes into goofiness, but also has a lot of serious bits to it. You know, this is, you know, still adventure, this is still action, this is still, you know, a dangerous situation. Um, you know, again, TNG couldn't even do the sparing comedy bits. Uh, DS9 and Voyager, and I guess partially that may just be the casts that they have, that might be the makeup of the characters. Uh, I don't know. Whenever- well, I, I mean, I think this episode is a good example of that, because I think what, what, you're, what, what is really there is that these actors are playing characters that are more exasperated than the mm. TNG ca- the TNG crew was. Yeah. They are more irritable and they are more willing to be a little bit combative with each other and that also breeds comedy. I mean, I think like there's not many examples of it in this episode. I don't necessarily think this episode is very funny except for some of the dreams. Or, well, maybe funny is not the better word. Amusing, perhaps. Yeah. But, you know, Message in a Bottle, for example, you have, of course, the Doctor is a very good um, comedic character. Uh, you know, Catherine Janeway, um, Kate Mulgrew, you know, she is a good performer and she has a lot of sort of wry there's a wryness to her performance sometimes that I think is quite funny. And there, they, it has more combinations of characters where comedy will arise naturally than I think TNG ever did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, having to do with TNG's pedigree as a show where the characters were not allowed to argue with each other. Yeah, exactly. And that's certainly not true on Voyager. Yeah. Well, so so let's talk about, um, I guess, the, the, the final act of the episode or the final couple acts of the episode where, you know, everyone is falling asleep. Chakotay is in this dream world. There's dreams upon dreams. He thinks he's being woken up, but the aliens are not actually waking him up. 
And, you know, the end of the episode, of course, is, is kind of this this series of, of misadventures where, you know, Janeway realizes she's dreaming. Chakotay gets uh, woken up by the doctor, goes down to the planet and finds this device that the aliens are using to create this dream world or to put the Voyager crew in their reality or something. And it could be confusing, but it's not confusing. And... I don't think there's a lot of subtext here, but it's just nice to see this crew work together yeah. to solve a problem. Yeah, exactly. Because as much as they are, you know, this is the thing that Voyager is making clear that even though this is a ship with a lot of strong personalities and Harry Kim, uh, this is also a ship where everybody is does have the same goal. Again, everybody is in a very desperate situation. Bellana might be angry at a lot of people, but they are all working together in this. You know, this is not a divided crew. No, certainly not. And and I also think that, um, you know, Chicote is this is quite a good episode for, for him. Yeah. Uh, not not really telling us anything new about him, but he gets a chance to shine. He gets a chance to uh, have an adventure by himself and, and with the doctor, too, which is not a pairing that we normally see. And it works for me. I mean, I think, you know, Chicote is certainly not a character that gets a lot of episodes to himself, but when yeah. he does, I enjoy them. You know, I mean, we've said this about TNG, I know. It's nice to sometimes see a group of competent people acting competently, you know, and solving a problem. And that's what this episode is, you know, everybody willing to, you know, again, it's another episode in which, you know, five minutes in, everybody realizes they've had a weird situation. Okay, well, we're all going to look into this because this obviously means something. Um, and we get to see Seven of Nine beat up Harry Kim, and it's wonderful. <laughs> you were waiting for that to happen, weren't you? You know that I, 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 I think the show is recognizing that, you know, they have to keep Harry Kim for reasons but they don't have to treat him well and and it's it's terrible it is terrible that i am enjoying bad things happening to harry kim but there we go it is interesting that harry kim was was essentially a wallpaper for 3 seasons and they almost got rid of the actor but decided not to for reasons and then seven of nine comes in and they realize that that you know the characters and the actors play off well together and that they can just have seven of nine abuse harry kim all the time i mean it seems kind of mean but okay i'm with you no i mean we 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 talked about her as you know the i think you used the phrase the shiny new toy like she it I hate to say this. This feels really terrible to say, but she's like the cheerleader and he's the big nerd. And like, that's their dynamic and they're really running with it. It's very mean. She's, it's interesting you say that. She's, she's kind of the cheerleader in the Star Trek universe, which of course is the exact opposite of a cheerleader because she is very like technically competent, brilliant, yeah. you know, a good scientist. And, <laughs> and Harry Kim is, is just kind of, I don't even know what he's good at, frankly. I mean, you know, he does a tiny bit of, apparently he's really good at holodeck programming, uh, which, okay. Apparently he, you know, does, you know, Harry Kim is just like, you know, he's just an extra resource to put on a problem when, you know, you don't really need anyone who's completely skilled but who has a couple of skills. Like, uh, so, uh, I feel you know, so bad for Harry Kim. Like, I play Dungeons and Dragons, and one of the mechanics is if you have advantage on a roll, you get to roll the dice twice and you take the higher result. One of the things you can do in combat is you assist another character so you don't take a turn, but they get advantage on your roll. That's what Harry Kim does. Harry Kim gives other people advantage on their rolls. Okay. 
I'll, I'll go with that. That seems reasonable to me. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to briefly call out a really great line in this episode, which I think doesn't completely erase the problems I have with Janeway poking the the bear's nest all the time. But I think I'm mixing my metaphors there, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, where she says, we seem to have a knack for provoking strangers these days. Which <laughs> yeah. I think is like that. That's kind of the motto of the show. And maybe they should replace the uh, dedication plaque of USS Voyager and, and pl- put that as their new motto, because it <laughs> seems incredibly appropriate to me. A knack for, for provoking strangers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to Message in a Bottle, which uh, is very interesting. But before we do that, I just want to take an opportunity to let you all know that we do have a Patreon. Uh, If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a way for you to support the uh, podcast that you love, Trek About, every single month with a donation, Uh, $1, $2, hey, even $5 a month. Please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. All right, I really like Message in a Bottle. Yeah, I was not expecting to like Message in a Bottle. Again, seeing Andy Dick, I mean, we've lived through the 90s, so you know we have a trauma related to Andy Dick, and apparently everybody who worked with Andy Dick has those kind of traumas too, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, he and Robert Picardo play really well off each other. Um, he does a good job of playing that exact character, just slightly different. Uh, yeah, because you know it, the two of them are very similar characters, and it's it's funny. He's not it, it, one of the problems with Andy Dick as an actor is he is a very broad actor. I I was worried this was going to be him hamming it up the entire time, and you know he's not. He 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 recognize he's not trying to steal his scenes in a way. No, he's absolutely not. And I mean, I think that people forget that Andy Dick obviously got a, a, a reputation, um, which came, I think, a little later than this. He was mm-hmm. mostly famous, I think, at this point for for news radio. Yeah. And he wasn't he didn't steal scenes in news radio either. I mean, he was he was a part of an ensemble comedy and, yeah. and he did a fine job. And, you know, this is around that same time. I think news radio was in its maybe fourth season at this point or something like that. So, you know, he was still working it as an actor. He was uh, certainly didn't get the reputation he has nowadays for for being this sort of like scene stealing asshole. And uh, I I like his performance in this episode. I, I'm not quite sure why they decided to cast Andy Dick. I think that I mean, <sighs> was he a Star Trek fan? I mean, could it be one of those things? It's possible. I, I don't know. I mean, there um, is a degree of prestige in some ways, maybe not on Voyager, but to be in a Star Trek, I mean, is certainly a, you know, I, I, I can see a bunch of people saying, hey, I was on an episode of Star Trek. It was fun, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But I but I also think that this is a good opportunity to, to talk about how Voyager uses guest stars a little more because it's just bizarre that yeah. Andy Dick is in this episode, right? Like, it's just weird. And, you know, Michael McKean from The Thaw, for example, I mean, he was in, um, you know, uh, Spinal Tap. He was, you know, a big a big actor. Um, but they, they they're, I mean, I, you know, I, I think Richard knows that, uh, or maybe you don't, and maybe I'm going to spoil it, but The Rock is in an episode. No, oh my God. Uh, Jason Alexander is in an episode, I think, next okay. season. And they don't really ever... They they you know they they're they're restrained like they don't yeah. 
they're real actors. They're doing a real job. They are there to do it. But there is an unreality. There's a sort of what the fuckness about the situation because, you know, aside from like Iggy Pop in DS9, yeah, Star Trek never really did this kind of thing. And Voyager is the show that does it the most. And so this is kind of not the start of something, but the kind of continuation of something or the or, or, or maybe even the moment when they realize they could do it and get away with it because – Andy Dick is, I mean, you just watch this episode and you, you have this, like, I mean, at least I have this, this, you know, dividing line in my mind where it takes me like 10 minutes before I stop thinking that's Andy Dick, that's Andy Dick, yeah. that's Andy Dick. This is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, I mean, it's stunt casting. It's not the first show to do stunt casting. It's, it generally gets a, I, I, I mean, the other big guest star that we had was Sarah Silverman, who was not a big guest star at this time, um, although still a strange, you know, person for the show to t- to take as an actress. Um, In retrospect, it, it's weird because of of who she is now. But you know, when that episode was was produced, it wasn't weird. Nobody knew who she were. Nobody knew who she was then. I think that was that at the time that Mister Show was out, though, because I mean, she was still. Either way, she was you know more of a comedian. But either way, um, yeah. But Mister Show was a cult hit. Yeah, of no course. One really knew it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it. Not at the time, though. I wasn't old enough. Um, exactly. See. <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily bad, and again, Voyager is better at comedy, and Voyager is better at doing a, hey, this guy is in this, but, um, I mean, again, this is another time where we're going to have to compare it to what we're doing on the X-Files, because uh, we just did, uh, we just recorded the other week um, the episode Never Again, which features Jodie Foster as a guest voice role, and, you know, you mentioned that they are about to do some more stunt casting in that way, um... I mean, it doesn't feel like a desperation move on Voyager's part. I don't think, you know, it's anybody is going to start watching Voyager because Andy Dick was on it. But I think it is more of a sign of I think it is a sign of where Star Trek is that, you know, they're able to get different people like this. They're able to get odd uh, odd actors who are who don't necessarily need to. Again, you know, Sarah Silverman gets the role because she's, you know, a an actress kind of at the beginning of her career and she'll take whatever work is available. Um, Andy Dick is not at that point. Jason Alexander will not be at that point when he's on. Um, and so they're kind of taking the role because they want to, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, Sarah Silverman was a working – she was trying to be yeah. a working actor at that point And, you know, that, that may or may not have gone well for her depending on your point of view. But – Certainly, she's not hurting or anything like that at this point, and she's, uh, I think, res- a respected comedian and and, and well known. Um, you know, Andy Dick is obviously a different thing, but you know, leaving all that aside, and, and also we do have to say, of course, that that Voyager is always the different Star Trek because it was a network television show. It had network interference that DS9 and TNG yeah. just didn't have to deal with, and so the stunt casting aspect of it was probably partially to do with that as well. Yeah. You know, both mandated and both, uh, in some ways, giving them the ability to get better people in some ways. In some ways, yeah. So, uh, leaving that aside, I mean, you said that Andy Dick does a good job of playing, like, a slightly different version of the Doctor, and I yeah. think that's really right. You know, uh, leaving, you know, leaving all that aside, his performance is quite good, and he does a good job. He has a nice little character arc in the episode. <laughs> And, and you know, this is another example of the show 
not necessarily getting a, a serialized story, but it is interesting. I mean, it's it, a, it, I always find this episode surprising because yeah. it just seems a very odd thing to do. Yeah, and I mean, it's this episode is very good at showing how far the Doctor has come because in some ways. Andy Dick is what the doctor was at the beginning of the episode. He, you know, all of his protests at the, epi- at the beginning of the series. You mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, beginning of the series. Um, all of his protests, like, oh, I'm just supposed to be. I'm for a little while. I'm not supposed to be. I'm not. I'm not trained to do that. I'm not programmed for that. I mean, the doctor was saying the same exact things. I mean, when the doctor is saying, uh, you know, you need to transcend your programming. You need to just figure it out. You need to deal with it. This is the situation in which you're in. It sucks. I know, but. You know, that's life. Here we are. And you're the only one who can do this. Um, yeah, the, the, the fact that, you know, the doctor gives kind of a litany of everything he's been through. Uh, and we even learn that he's programmed a penis for himself, which is not something I needed to know. But uh, but that's in a long line, a long, healthy tradition. In Star stop Trek saying all. long. <laughs> it's a very, very girthy, long no! tradition in Star Trek. Uh yeah, that, I mean, you know, Data made that joke in the Naked Now. So something about artificial life forms and, and genitalia is in Star Trek's wheelhouse. Uh, it, 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 it again goes with our view of sex in Star Trek being kind of middle schoolish about it. But, you know, it just reminds me of in Mallrats when uh, uh, Jason Lee's character just keeps talking about like, well, th- does the thing have a dick? You know, does the superhero have a dick? Like this is this is where Star Trek is. Uh, if you haven't watched, if, if anybody out there, Richard in particular, hasn't watched um, any of the fourth season of Black Mirror yet, the, the first episode, USS Callister, which is a uh, riff on Star Trek in general, and I won't go any further than that, uh, does have a really, really uh, disturbing uh, genitalia joke. So we'll just leave it at that, and you oh, can boy. go and watch it at your leisure if you would like to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think in a certain sense you're right, and... Um, it also takes on a different resonance with Andy Dick, of course, because Andy Dick is a known sexual creep, uh, you know, where he says, oh, can you give me that uh, that subroutine? And the doctor's like, we'll see. So that's a little weird. But that's the actor and the performance and the, you know, kind of colliding, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, let's leaving that aside for a minute. I do want to talk about the doctor more and Andy Dick more the EMH2 or whatever you want to call him. Uh Let's just talk about the setup for this episode for a minute. Yeah. So USS Voyager's tooling along. Uh, you know, Seven of Nine calls Chakotay and Janeway to the Astrometrics Lab. She locks the door, which I find odd. Why would Seven lock a door? She's a Borg. The Borg don't lock doors. They have no concept of privacy, but whatever. Uh, because balana has been following her and yelling at her all week, it seems. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I would lock the door, too, if that had been happening to me. Like, I, like from Seven's perspective, I think Bellotta just came like, why are you doing that way? You shouldn't do that. You're very rude. Why are you so rude? You need to be more polite. And, like, Seven just, like, wandering off while Bellotta's following her. That's my imagination. Why, why, are you, why are you eating that for breakfast, Seven? Why are you sleeping now? What are you doing now? What's going on? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, they go, oh, well, I've got this, uh, you know, alien communications array and there's a mm-hmm. Starfleet ship. Okay, whatever. You know, there's a Starfleet yeah. ship at the outer edges of the Alpha Quadrant and uh, we can't send a message because it's re- being redirected back. But we're going to send our only doctor. And if we, in this very, like, 
dangerous fraught procedure that he might get lost in transit and he's like yeah okay fine but and i can believe the doctor would do that i mean yeah but at the same time like and i think it's intentional right like i don't think that uh i don't I, lisa clink wrote this script it's quite good um lisa clink watch again she only has two more episodes Aww. of star trek ever and then she's gone but um you know, so I, I believe that Janeway wouldn't necessarily because think about it for think about it. Right. Like if the doctor was a, 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 a quote unquote real person, a yeah. an organic life form, a living and breathing human being. And Janeway was sending him on a mission that could result in his death. She would not order him to do it. She would say, listen, this this you, there's a very good chance you'll die. You don't have to do this. I'm not going to order you to your well, death unless it's absolutely necessary. But, you know, and, and so but she doesn't answer that that doesn't occur to Janeway. She doesn't say that. I still think that Janeway, to a fundamental degree, does not respect the doctor as a person. See, I don't get the same quite the same read on that, given that. uh the fact that you may have to order somebody to their death is something that, I mean, Next Gen explored that a lot, right? Like with uh, Picard and that and his girlfriend or that one episode where Troy is taking the bridge exam. Um, you know, it makes it very clear that as a captain, you have to make this order sometimes. And I think... Yes, that, but it's not well, even a question in Janeway's mind. No one raises it. Mm. And that that is a fair point to say. I think there is a degree to which this is so desperate and needs to be made so quickly. And while it's not quite a choice, uh, you know, she does give him a second to refuse it. I mean, she does say, you know, listen, this is very dangerous. You might not come back. And, you know, the doctor says, well, you know, far be it for me to refuse this or something like that. Like, I said I wanted to go on a way message, but this is ridiculous. Um, like, I think if the doctor had, set, had, had brought some... Ex- objections she would have rethought it but you know that i mean i think that i think that's fair but but then the other the other half of that is there's no question in anyone's mind no one ever says hey should we be sending our only doctor yeah on this really dangerous mission where he may not come back well i think they realize that you know he is one of the most popular characters and that he's not going to die but you know that's a different story (laughs) yeah that that's possible but it just strikes me as odd. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. There's a time crunch. They have ten minutes left because they only have ten minutes left because otherwise, you know, they they would have time to think about this and realize what a terrible idea. They it could is. have sold that the tech. They could have techno babbled it in to make it clear that this they have more of a guarantee that he will come back. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, like he'll be redirected or something like that, like the other message. And maybe that's what they think. You know, maybe they yeah. think, well, if this doesn't work, the doctor will just get bounced back to us, like the other two messages we tried to send. But they don't say that, which I think is a little strange. I mean, if it had been someone else, if it had been like Leonardo da Vinci going there, yeah. I don't, I would not have had this problem. But because the doctor is the only doctor that they have, and as the episode makes very, very clear in the B plot, you know, Tom Paris is not in any way shape or form equipped to take over as the ship's doctor yeah 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 and it's very difficult to create a replacement for the hollow hollow doctor yeah it it certainly is well let's talk about that plot line then because i still want to talk about the uss prometheus and the romulans and all that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. uh and how nice is it to be back in the Alpha Quadrant? Yeah, I hate to say that, but... no, no, no. Like they, they, that was deliberate. And the fact that it is Romulans is that you know it, who else could it be? I mean, number one, they you know there is a gloss on the Dominion War, but obviously they're not going to go into that 
too much because it's you know they you know watch DS Nine if you want the Dominion plot. Romulans is the thing that everybody kind of knows about the about Star Trek. You know, so in a way, they're a good shorthand for Alpha Quadrant villain, whether you're a casual fan or whether you're hardcore about it. Yeah, no, absolutely, the Romulans are a good choice, but. Well, I mean, let's um, let's. Well, I guess we are talking about that. Sorry, sorry, Tom Paris and Harry Kim, but we'll get back to you. I I think it's it's interesting, and it's it's an example of Voyager being very subtle in its storytelling because the USS Prometheus is this advanced, you know, NX class war. Not well, it's not a class; it's a designation, but it's it's an experimental ship, like the Defiant was. Yeah, you know, essentially, and notice as well that there were two Defiant class ships at the end of the episode. So they're they're off running some tests. They're they're shaking out the you know they're running on their shakedown crews or whatever. And the Romulans find out about this very advanced you know Starfleet warship uh, with this weird tactical thing which yeah. goes into five pieces and destroys everything in its path. Um, and they capture it and they're going to give it to the Tal something, not the Tal Shiar. I forget what it was. Mm. Uh, there's another Tal organization out there that's not the Tal Shiar. Okay, fine. That's a good setup for this episode. Yeah. I mean, even Fanon, I thought that they were uh, going to be giving the vehicle to the Dominion. Like, this was an offshoot of the Romulans that wanted to work with the Dominion. I don't know where this is in relation to the Pale Moonlight, but certainly... Well, that's what I was about to say. So, uh, this episode aired in Jan- the, towards the end of January in 1998, and the Pale Moonlight aired about three months later. Okay. Yeah, so, the, you know, it is very possible that they are defecting to the Dominion with this ship. Eh, I don't know about that. I, I think that like whether or not they are, they are, and is probably not. Yeah, th- that would that would have that's not the point of the episode, and I think it's yeah, enough yeah. that the Romulans are stealing it just to steal it. I mean, let's not forget that in the pale moonlight happened because the Federation was losing the war. The Federation Klingon Alliance was losing the war. Uh, they needed the Romulans to come in as an ally. The Federation and the Klingons needed another ally. The Romulans were the most likely candidate. And the Romulans were, were at least, you know, nominally neutral at that point. They were staying out of it. And so they were a good candidate. Now, I don't know that it would make any sense necessarily for the Romulans to want to join with the Dominion. And well, I don't think well, that DS9 ever talked about that. So there's a difference between the Romulans and these Romulans, because remember, they think, you know, the ca- their commander has not really told them what they, you know, they think they're t- one of the uh People saying, like, oh, why are we go- not going towards Romulus? And he's like, oh, we're giving this to somebody else. Like, that doesn't seem to be something that everybody knows, you know. he's He has a shady agenda, He's you know, even for a Romulan. Romulans always have shady agendas, though. <laughs> it's true. There's, like, there's, there's coup attempts on Romulus, like, every other week. It's a horrible place. Yeah, do you remember, like... When a uh, uh, unification, when when they were there, and they were the, basically what Romulans do for fun is sit around eating like pale bowls of soup all the time. I mean, it's not a fun place. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I mean, I think it like the the one uh, uh, it, it kind of I mean I don't know it's weird because this episode in a certain sense makes Voyager's plight seem really really sad and urgent in a way that I don't think it has in a while. Yeah. You know, part of why I think they, you know, you can say, well, they didn't think about the implications of sending the doctor, et cetera, et cetera, because that first part of the episode, the first five or 10 minutes of the episode, they, they really do sell how desperately yeah. they want to hear back from the Federation, how desperately they want to make contact and let them know that um, they're not they're that they're not lost, that they're still out there and that, you know, when they get there, there's this entire 
thing going on that they have no knowledge of. And, you know, certainly uh, uh, the EMH2, Andy Dick, did not tell the doctor anything about the Dominion aside from mentioning the name. Yeah. But, and, and it is a nice touch, of course, the doctor's like, who? What? Yeah. And it does make you realize, like, what's been going on while they've been gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a mention of Mark, for example, for sort of the first time in a, maybe a couple of years, even. Um, yeah. And, you know, we learn that Voyager has been declared lost, which I think everybody on the crew possibly, you know, they've they probably braced for that possibility. So, you know, their loved ones all think they're all dead. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, it is a very desperate moment at the very beginning of the episode. You know, even yeah, though, I, even though they're ten years closer than they had been, that's still now fifty-five years they have left, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's they're still really, really far away from from getting home. And the the end of the episode is really bittersweet, though, because it is the case that the doctor comes back and you know says, mm-hmm. "Oh, I made contact with Starfleet headquarters, and you know, I, I let them know what happened." And so Starfleet now knows what happened to yeah. Voyager, and. You know, the sad thing is Starfleet also has its hands really full right now with the yeah. Dominion War. So I don't know to what degree they're really going to be able to to put a lot of resources behind, uh, you know, what's been going on. And the episode no. doesn't even make it clear whether or not the Doctor was filled in on what exactly is happening with the war. Yeah, I get the sense he wasn't. I mean, we know it's going to be another two years that the Federation is dealing with this war before it can really... You know, any resources it has, it has to be for the war. And, you know, maybe at the end, the the Federation will come up with some tech that they can contact the Alpha Quadrant with. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then let's talk about, um, I guess, the plot line with with Tom Paris and Harry Kim. Why not? Because (laughs) it's really dumb. Yeah. And I don't know why it's in the episode, frankly, because. You don't need the comedy. The comedy is coming from the Doctor and Andy Dick's farcical attempts to get control of the Prometheus back. Uh, but I don't know. Like Tom Paris is not a good Doctor, and he's uh, once again. I think it's like a character being addicted to Harry Kim, ordering him around for no reason, and Harry Kim going, "Okay, I'm a sad sack. I guess I'll just help you." <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is another plot line that you know. This would not be the plot line if Kess were still on the ship, right? Like she would be. She would just take over the duties, and you know she's she would be pretty much ready to take over sick bay at this point. I mean, the doctor made that much clear to her uh, towards yeah. the end of her run, and you know it would just be her dealing with this. It's more, Tom, you know, Tom knows what he's good at, and he's always hated being the doctor, but that's he's the only one who you know knows how to bandage a thing. Apparently, I mean, I'm surprised that you know the doctor doesn't have any nurses at this point. Like, why is, you know, Tom the only crew member that's, you know, he's trained for this? You know, in between Kess, you would think that. But, um, yeah. Because I think that there are no other crew yeah, members besides Tom Paris. Well. And in, nobody else wants to do it. The little girl is a new crew member, and she's able to do it now. Why not her? Oh, come on. She's like three years old. She's not going to be a nurse. I mean, she could be a really bad nurse. <laughs> Yeah, like three-year-old girls never pretend to be nurses. Like, come on, it's easy. <laughs> they pretend to be nurses, but well, they yeah. don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, they give little candy pills, and they say, you know, this will make you feel all better. Um, I, I also, again, I think that you know, this episode is 
I mean, it, I found the ending surprisingly touching for the fact that the the majority of it is, you know, a fairly comedic thing, and all of the B-plots are comedic. We have Neelix. I love Neelix's plot in this episode where, uh, you know, he's serving his red-hot root and toot and chili, and it's, you know, terrible, but I love how excited Neelix is to go to Earth, right? Like, Neelix is going to go back, and he's going to fully become, you know— invested in federation society like he's you know again it's a it's a degree to which he is you know he has no home uh and you know how voyager is his home but he assumes that earth is going to be just as welcoming and friendly as voyager is and maybe it will be yeah 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 i mean he does have a weird line like he says something about like i need to make sure that i'm I'm, i can be gainfully employed or i need to be able to make sure i can earn my keep or something and i'm like has no one told you about the federation's like uh, uh, communist utopia like maybe that would be a good thing to fill you in on but hey whatever yeah but i mean even i I think that's right though i mean i he doesn't want to feel useless you know yeah sure but he doesn't have to work. No, so but whatever. Yeah, again, again, you know, Neelix is somebody who wants to do a lot of things. He is somebody who, I mean, let, let's face it, when Neelix is not busy, that's when he hears the voices of his dead family. So Neelix needs to be running around all day. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, I, I don't want to uh, leave the. I don't want to end the episode without talking a little bit more about Andy Dick and the Doctor, though, because. Yeah. You know, they they do a good job of taking back the ship. Uh, You know, the Doctor is... I think this episode, like you said before, is is able to show exactly how far the Doctor has come by showing where Andy Dick is and how he is where the Doctor was when the Doctor was first activated back in the the pilot episode of Voyager. But at the same time, this episode is also there to show how the Doctor is able to essentially spur holograms on to uh, be better than they think they can be. And and very quickly too, I it, you know Andy Dick gets to a place that the Doctor was not at for like a year at least. Yeah, because the Doctor had to do that on all on his own. I mean, the Doctor is a self-made man in a very literal sense, and uh, I, I, I the episode. Yeah, with- do you think that? Do you, do you remember when the Doctor said that he made himself a penis and Andy Dick wants it? Yeah, <laughs> um, I just wanted to mention that again. Yes, it haunts my dreams at night. I've not been able to sleep since watching this episode. Um, and, uh, you know, then there is the scene where they're obviously going to be comparing them to each other. And that's just disgusting. But um, I digress. Um, yeah, you know, the Doctor is somebody who, again, fought for his respect on this crew, happened to be in a situation in where the crew will, in some cases, more grudgingly than others, but... You know, where the crew will accept his humanity and will let him uh, become more than he is. And he's been very fortunate. I mean, it's only by luck that he has the hollow emitter, right? It's only by luck that he's sure. able to be in the situation he is. Um, and when, you know, when he meets another hologram, he, 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 I, I, I think it speaks very well to him that he is trying to pass that on and trying to save as many others as he can in a way, you know, because he, he certainly feels that he has been enriched by his experience and that it is very important that the others get that same enrichment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, and, you know, the doctor is going to be an advocate um, yeah. for, for any hologram that he meets because no one else is going to be, which I think is a really interesting direction to, to take the character, but it, but it completely makes sense because he had to fight for, the respect that he got and you know he he 
you know, lists that entire, uh, you know, that bit where he's talking to the Andy Dick character about what exactly he's able yeah. to do and, you know, go around the ship and he takes place, uh, he, you know, he, he uh, participates in staff briefings and goes on away missions and has had sex and has a penis and Andy Dick wants his penis <laughs> um, in, in both senses of the word. And that's how it's, Andy it's Dick nice. got in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's nice to it's nice to see that, and I think it it shows an understanding of the Doctor yeah. as a character very very well. Yeah, I mean, for all of his arrogance, he is also a. Uh, I mean, the, the Doctor you know mentions the Hippocratic Oath every five minutes, right? In the in the series, um, you know, he's somebody who is going to cure a Romulan, even though that Romulan has killed all of these crew members, and you know, it's still paramount to this he is somebody who views the sacredness of life and whose definition of that life is very broad and who is going to again just as he sees a sick patient a hologram who needs kind of a boost you know is some it's his responsibility it's his vocation to do that yeah yeah i think that's right all right, we should wrap this episode up, but uh, just one brief thing I want to mention. Um, so the Herosian make an appearance for the first time, and uh, okay. I say that very deliberately. Okay. I was curious if we would see them again. I mean, they certainly have enough makeup and costuming that, you know, they're not going to waste that on a one shot, but. We will find out very soon about the Herosian. We may even find out next week. Oh, boy. Another another asshole species in the in the Delta Quadrant. All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. Oh, and I should mention as well that I love the fact that Seven shocks him. It's just so nice. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love her and Balana. I really can't wait for them to have their final heart to heart because they're they're too much like each other. That is the reason Balana is so infuriated by Seven. But like when they finally become friends, they're going to be great friends. Yeah, yeah. And I also... They're going like, to team up to fuck with Carrie Kim. Like, it's going to be glorious. We'll just have to see if that happens. But I also like, you know, not not to, to drag this out, but I also like that um, the show is continuing the the little scenes between Chakotay and Bellana where Bellana's just, like, bitching to yeah. Chakotay like he's not the first officer because that, that you know, friendship relationship has, has been one of the most consistent, I think, touch points of the show. And while it doesn't revisit it often, it, it has remembered that it yeah. is there and it does always come up when Bellana is very frustrated and wants to vent to someone. Yeah. And, you know, why is she not venting to tom paris i don't know but hey. uh, you know to some degree i mean chakotay is a little older is a little more experienced is a higher rank than her and and yet is still kind of a peer in her mind so he's you know the older brother that she can complain to and that can give her you know that can talk her down because she yeah. you know you know she knows that he's going to calm her in that way that she needs to be sometimes yeah yeah all right well i think we'll call it an episode if you have any thoughts on either waking moments or message in a bottle please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com as i said earlier you can check out our patreon patreon.com slash truckaboutshow it also supports our other podcast tuning in which you can find at tuninginshow.com we are covering the x-files episodes synchrony and small potatoes this week i love potatoes i do too facebook twitter instagram Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Truck About. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Star Trek Voyager episodes, Hunters and Prey.